Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 25th, a Tuesday, 2023. Last night, I went to see the new Mission Impossible movie. It's crossed a new milestone. It's actually making money, uh, even though everyone now is going to Oppenheimer and uh, Barbie. We did a show last week what, with Opp about Oppenheimer. Uh, later this week, we'll do one on Barbie too. Meanwhile, Mission Impossible was, as you expect on Mission Impossible, lots of evil people and lots of Tom Cruise jumping around, riding motorcycles and appearing much younger than his 90 or 100-year-old self would suggest he is. Um, what was interesting, I thought, about the film was it's all about AI. AI now is everywhere. AI is evil in Hollywood. Um, according to The Verge, um, Dead Reckoning, the new Mission Impossible movie, is the mother of all self-aware AI panic flicks. Uh, there was no Al-Qaeda in Dead Reckoning, no evil Soviets or Chinese, only evil AI. I'm not quite sure how you're supposed to represent evil uh, AI. We, of course, have done many shows on the potential evil of AI, mostly from a, a liberal progressive perspective. Uh, one that comes to mind, for example, was uh, earlier this year with the New Yorker writer Adam Kirsch. He has a new book out, The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us. Um, it's an interesting argument. We've done many other shows like it. What we haven't done is a show with the conservative, someone on the right uh, of American politics, who are articulating uh, quite similar concerns, uh, sometimes in rather different language. Uh, Joe Allen is a contributor to Steve Bannon's War Room. He's on the show most days. He's Bannon's tech guy. And uh, he also has a substack called Singularity Weekly, Race, Robots, Religion. And he has a new book out. It's coming out next month, Dark Aeon, Transhumanism and the War Against Humanity. Joe is joining us from Knoxville, Tennessee, we can't see Joe, but um, he's certainly there. Joe, uh, you are for real, aren't you? You're not some uh, bot created by Steve Bannon. Uh, you know, the biological element is certainly present, but I think just being here on this medium shows that some degree of cyborg tissue has wormed its way into my brain. Uh, yeah, very sorry about the camera, but, uh, you know, yeah. tech difficulties it's, it's are a the big, story of my yeah, life. I think Joe... Uh, the Silicon Valley powers that be knew you're going to be on my show and they disabled your camera. Um, I often, often when it comes to AI, when I have guests often who are critical, I always ask them, well, prove to me that you're not a bot. Your, um, uh, your, your, uh, your email has bot in it. Joe, how, how would you prove, especially since we can't see you, that you're not actually a bot? Well, you know, in this day and age of deep fakes and uh, simulated human faces, I'm not sure that you would be able to tell 100% for sure if my camera was working. But I, I think probably the inevitable mispronunciation of the word mispronunciation might be an indication uh, or uh, of anyone's name. I'm notorious for mispronouncing people's names. 
And I don't think any robot would be that consistent in its mistakes. Yeah, join, join the crowd. Nobody is worse at mispronouncing names. That's why I had you on the show. It's very hard to mispronounce Joe Allen. Tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, Joe. How did you end up as the tech guy on uh, Steve Bannon's War Room? You know, it was a remarkable coincidence. Uh, I describe it in the preface of my book. But uh, a year before I hooked up with Bannon, I had seen him interviewed on PBS for the very first time. Uh, not, and not literally, I hope, uh, Steve. I'm but sorry? Not literally, Joe. You didn't literally hook up with him. You know that. Oh, language. no. It's a, you know, we're a very homophobic crowd. Uh, it's, it's not the sort of thing that, uh, that we would ever even consider. Good. I'd have to throw you off if you had. So go on. Uh, yes. Um, so the uh, the year before I met and, um, and, and came onto the war room, I'd seen an interview with Steve Bannon and wanted to get in touch with him uh, during the, the height of the pandemic, if no, for no other reason, I think just to get his perspective on what was actually going on. And um, it's really difficult to do. And you don't just call up Steve Bannon. So for a year, I put it out of my mind. And then uh, a year later, I was writing about technology and transhumanism Suddenly, the same friend who had turned us on to the uh, PBS interview uh, said that Steve Bannon had given me a shout out on the war room. And a couple of weeks later, I saw a two week old um, Twitter message that I had missed because I never checked those things at the time. His producer had reached out to have me on the show. I went on and um, the next day he asked me to join the war room full time. And I've been there ever since. That was uh, May, I'm sorry, March of 2021. So uh, Steve has had a, a long-standing interest in transhumanism. I think that the um, his encounters with people in finance and his experience at Davos at the World Economic Forum uh, gave him the impression that transhumanism was not simply some sort of fringe ideology, but had in fact uh, percolated up to some of the more powerful people who determine not only the, uh, the the politics, but in many ways, the, the cultural landscape that we live in. Uh, Joe, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually in Gettysburg in Pennsylvania at the Braver, Braver Angels Convention. I'm sure you're familiar with those guys. They're trying to bring people of the left and the right together to restart, rekindle uh, civil conversation in America. Is the fact that many people on the left and now clearly those on the right, they agree in many ways about transhumanism. Does that suggest that some of the darker forebodings about the divisions in American politics might be wrong, might be a little uh, exaggerating? I think that on the ground, uh, without the sorts of artificial divisions that people uh, invariably have uh, largely driven by media, that most of us see each other as human. Uh, it doesn't mean that we have to like each other or even necessarily live next to each other, but we can certainly see the common humanity with a, just even the slightest bit of charity. And ideas such as transhumanism, especially the post-human versions of it, are a direct threat to what it means to be human. And so it's clearly, a, it's, all, all human beings have good reason to be disturbed by the notion. And I, I I don't think that 
the left and the right will ever become some sort of unified force. But I do think there are a lot of common issues, everything from the environment and the preservation of natural habitat and species to the, the failure of the education system to really uh, inculcate a, a serious understanding of the world and, and social responsibility in students over the past decade, certainly decades, arguably. And all these sorts of things are just common human interests. And I think the threat of technology is yet another one. I don't think that it will be like that, that sort of mythic alien invasion that brings all of humanity together. I would like to think it would be, but I don't think it will be. But I do think that it is certainly a, a common reference point for any person with any kind of conscience or sense of self-preservation. Joe, uh, apologies if I have pigeonholed you. Um, you know, the book is published by Warum, Beck, uh, Warum Books, distributed by Simon & Schuster. So it's clearly a conservative book. Is there a, a conservative quote-unquote argument in there or is it just simply a, a more classic defense of humanity and of humanism against transhumanism those kind of critiques have been around really ever since humans began writing and thinking for themselves i think that most people who read it will if you're conservative you'll find much that resonates and if you're liberal you'll find much to offend but I, I don't really consider myself to be some sort of staunch conservative in the sense that I fall into any neat and tidy political pigeonhole. Of course, I've spent most of my life, uh, my professional life, working with my hands and uh, I'm a longstanding union member. And uh, unionization has been a huge boon for the working class. So I don't really see myself as being some kind of running dog for uh finance and those who would seek to protect uh, the, the wealthy classes. Uh, Steve Bannon, you probably know, is also uh, very much on fire against wealth inequality and the excesses of uh, finance. And he's oftentimes been accused of, of being a Leninist for that reason. Perhaps that's why he brought me on. He oftentimes jokes that I'm a Tennessee cracker, and I think that's pretty much correct. Yeah, I mean, I had um, Jen Senior on the show a few months ago. She wrote a long piece, a cover story for The New Yorker about Bannon. And we actually talked about how Bannon, for better or worse, is Leninist. I mean, I don't think it's any secret. He, he appreciates, for better or worse, the nature of power. Sure. Uh, but my argument isn't, I think a lot of people look, to the war room for political uh, information and perhaps to some extent political guidance. Uh, that's something I've never provided. In fact, one of the most common critiques of my reporting is that I'm not offering any solutions. And, um, and that's, that's for the most part true. In my book, I do at the, at the end, uh, the, the 12th chapter is nothing but my sense of the solution and there's an appendix that is jokingly entitled My 55-Point Plan to Stay Human. But um, I, I think that this is not, people oftentimes think of transhumanism as a conspiracy, or they think of it as an elite cabal of individuals that could be easily identified, and if you were to remove them, you remove the problem. I think that transhumanism is just simply uh, an expression of much broader trends, just the development of technology and the idea, one of many ideologies that has bubbled up on top of that advancement. And so uh, even the term transhumanism, you're probably aware, it's, it's really 
kind of gone out of fashion. It, you know, transhumanism was a really hot topic uh, at the end of the 90s and the early 2000s, especially Francis Fukuyama's famous um, description of transhumanism as uh, the world's most dangerous idea. He was mostly focused on bioconservatism. Uh, bioconservatism. Mm, and Fukuyama was actually on the show a couple of months ago talking about his new book on the crisis of democracy. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, but I do think that uh, transhumanism is, is just a, it's a, it's a term I'm using to capture many things sort of like conservative or liberal would be. But I, many of the figures that I'm talking about who display a very obvious transhumanist orientation don't describe themselves as transhumanists. So uh, but just the idea that technology is the highest power on Earth, the idea that artificial intelligence represents a tremendous advance for humanity or a tremendous advance and a competitor to humanity. Uh, I think that those ideas have suffused the culture, especially in the wake of chat GPT, which sparked the sort of AI arms race in Silicon Valley and all the way over to China. And uh, I think that the mystique around it, and especially the AI doomerism, has sparked a public consciousness that is positive in one respect. I think that the public should be much more aware of the damaging effects of technology. On the other hand, I think the extreme predictions of AI apocalypse uh, serve to distract from the more immediate danger of social psychosis. And that's something that's long been with us, perhaps always been with us. But I think that digitized culture has created a, a sort of collective schizophrenia and uh, or select uh, a collective uh, border uh, personality disorder. And um, I think, uh, yeah, the the AI apocalypse, who knows? You know, people have long said that we would have ecological collapse. People have long said we would have nuclear annihilation. Uh, people have long said that uh, we would have beasts rise from the sea and from the land and uh, swarms of locusts killing everybody. None of those things have come to pass in any global sense. Uh, all of them are, are real dangers. And I think AI represents a real danger, especially well, AI. Global warming. Um, Joe, more than 10 years ago, when this show was on TechCrunch, which is the first show, actually, the first video show on TechCrunch, we had Ray Kurzweil on the show talking about how, in his view, at least, computers will reverse engineer the human mind by 2029. At that point, it seems slightly absurd, slightly Kurzweilian. Today, in 2023, it doesn't seem that unrealistic. For you, is Kurzweil and some of his associates, are they the central figures in what you call transhumanist ideology? Are they bad people? Uh, you know, the book, Dark Eon, and uh, just, just so you know, as long as we're talking about mispronunciations, I'm going with Eon for two reasons. One is the proper Cambridge pronunciation, although most of the Gnostics whom I know uh, personally pronounce it aeon um uh, yeah i called it aeon i apologize you're my i say aeon you say what do you say tomato and yeah. potato right so well we all know what it means a e combined o n what does it actually mean though you know there's two elements to it and it, we'll come back to Kurzweil in just one second but if i can't explain there's two elements of course uh it's the uh, uh latinized kind of archaic spelling of eon is in a period of time uh, it's also meant to represent uh, an eon 
as in the Gnostic entities in the Gnostic heresy. And Gnosticism comes up a lot in the book because Gnosticism comes up a lot in transhumanism. And uh, I, I, I really think that the idea of the Gnostics, the central idea that there are two realms, one spiritual and one material, and that the material must be transcended in favor of the spiritual, that transhumanism picks up on, a, on that thread. And it's a thread that runs through all world religions to some extent or another, and that it inverts that idea, uh, meaning that rather than transcending the flawed material realm by means of spiritual practice and spiritual identity, um, transhumanism seeks to create a spiritual realm, a virtual heaven, so to speak, or a, a virtual astral plane. A lot of transhumanists talk about it in that fashion openly. Um, coming back to Kurzweil, though, Kurzweil features in the second chapter, and he's, he, he shows up again and again in the book. You can't talk about transhumanism without talking about Ray Kurzweil. I, I think that his vision of the singularity even for those transhumanists who reject it, is still a common reference point for all of them in their thinking about what the future of technology will look like. Kurzweil is oftentimes credited with an 86% uh, uh, accuracy rate with his predictions. I've never seen it broken down prediction by prediction, so if any of your listeners can send it to me, I would greatly appreciate the actual breakdown. But I do go through his book, uh, The Age of Spiritual Machines, and look at what he got right and what he got wrong, at least the high points. And what I see is that he got enough right to be, if, if you're bothered by the concept of the singularity or you're bothered by the idea of reverse engineering a human brain to become a sort of conscious, willful, and uh, in some sense, superhuman digital being, then his accurate predictions are perhaps pointing in that direction. His inaccurate prediction, I guess, would be cause for hope. The, to the question of whether or not these are bad people, uh, their ideas and their concept of what humanity is, what humanity should be, what the orientation, especially the spiritual orientation of civilization should be, uh, they are diametrically opposed to my own. But I think... And what, and what is your own? Uh, you're a traditional monotheist? Because it's interesting, we... I would not necessarily call myself a traditional monotheist, although that is certainly the the uh, fertile bed from which I grew. But uh, are you there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that um, I definitely come from uh, the spiritual tradition of Christianity I wouldn't necessarily say that I fall into any kind of orthodox category of Christianity, although I do believe that the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Orthodox Catholic Church, uh, represent a strong moral, cultural and social backbone that uh, the eradication of which has been very damaging for Western culture. And you see the same sort of secularization processes in other nations. Well, other it goes the other way, um, Joe. We just did mm. earlier today a show with Julian Barnes, a very distinguished English writer. Uh, he has a new book at Elizabeth Finch. And, and Barnes was very outspoken in his critique of what he calls monotheism and a defense of polytheism, a kind of, I guess, informal what you might call Gnosticism. 
And last year, I had my old friend, the English uh, left-wing writer, Jeanette Winterson, on the show. Um, she's written a book. She wrote a book last year or the year before on AI, which was actually quite optimistic. She's agnostic. And she actually believes that our artificial intelligence will en enrich, in her view, the way we live and love. So in a way, in an odd way, perhaps what we're coming back to with our age of AI is the reappearance of the great debate between Gnostics and Christians on this stuff. I, in some sense, but I think it's very much warped. Uh, I, I do think that the conflation of Gnosticism with transhumanism misses that inversion and that distinction that Gnostics make between the transcendent spirit, the pleroma, so to speak, the fullness of light that proceeds and is eternal as, as, as opposed to the material, whereas transhumanism, outside of a few strains which see it as an expression of that spirit, transhumanism is by and large atheistic, and transhumanism is to the extent that it is inspired by Gnosticism, transhumanism inverts that value system. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a very complex field, you could say, theologically. And I think that uh, you know, as, as, as anyone uh, who pays attention to the, the kind of intra-religious wars in Christianity knows, Christianity is not some sort of monolithic unity. Uh, Christianity has fractured and began as very much a, a diverse or fractured movement. So, uh, but I think that the ultimate for me, if I were to boil it down into any simple sort of soundbite description, I do think that Christianity, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, any of the traditional religious uh, systems direct the human soul towards something that is supernatural, super material. And it, it may take on the outward expression of the material, but the direction that it is pointing to is beyond this world. Whereas transhumanism or technocracy or posthumanism or even just raw atheistic evolution or Marxism, all of these point towards a transcendent state that will be created by human beings out of the material. And to what it, whatever extent there is anything spiritual that is very fringe to the overriding atheism or materialism in that. So they're very, very distinct. I think Gnosticism shares more in common with Christianity than it does with transhumanism in its ultimate orientation. So are you collapsing? You slipped Marxism in at the end then, um, uh, Joe. Are you collapsing Marxism and technocracy? Are you suggesting they're the same thing? I, I mean, we could we could spend hours arguing that one. I'm not sure it's necessarily the case. <laughs> Certainly, Marx himself was rather critical of, of utilitarianism in the 19th century. Yeah, absolutely not. And Marx uh, was actually very critical of just the industrial system um, overall and, and a lot of uh, negative statements about technology without employing the term. Uh, no, I, I think that I'm only putting it under the same materialist umbrella. Although many Marxists are gravitating towards transhumanism. Uh, it's, a, it's a sort of bizarre hybrid. Um, Give me some names. You're throwing, that's a, quite a... I would say... I would say the one that, what, what Marxists in particular are you thinking uh, are tending towards transhumanism? I would say the accelerationist ideas of Nick Land, which uh, come out of Marxism, and he's not a, a, some sort of traditional working class, you know, greasy hand Marxist. But um, I, I think that uh, Nick Land 
and his idea of, of techno accelerationism and, and the uh, exacerbation of inequality under techno capital uh, will ultimately lead to a sort of destruction. It, it, it kind of falls in line with Marx's apocalyptic prediction of that, you know, the idea that in order to reach the sort of Marxist socialist utopia, that you would have to first pass through the, uh, the stark inequality of capitalism and the excesses of capitalism. And so uh, Nick Land would be one example. Another example would be, and I, and I do not, I, to be very clear, I certainly would not, I, I see no reason to categorize Sam Altman as a Marxist. I, he may be, he may not be, but I will say that his ideas of radical abundance and his Moore's law for everything is very um, resonant with the Marxist ideal that you would have a, an enlightened ruling class and a, a, a satisfied and materially um, taking care of working class. Of course, in, in Altman's view, there wouldn't really be a working class because there would be no work left to do. Right, and I, I think that's an important point. Uh, Altman, of course, is CEO, the founder, uh, the CEO of, of OpenAI, very influential, probably the most powerful figure in Silicon Valley at the moment. Um, certainly, the most controversial, um, very much a supporter of guaranteed minimum income. In a way, I think Altman is. Uh, you you could read Altman and then read Marx's German ideology, and they're actually saying rather similar things, for better or worse. I'm actually, in some ways, sympathetic to both of them, but uh, I, th I think you may be right. There are going to be people, um, Joe, listening to this, who think, oh, really, when you pair it all away, it's the same argument about, you know, Sam Altman, Silicon Valley, Zuckerberg, Sandberg, Soros, blah, blah, blah. Is there, in your view, some sort of conspiracy here? Is no, Soros I, I, behind it all? I see. Uh, to the extent there's any conspiracy, it is a conspiracy on top of a conspiracy on top of a conspiracy, many of which are conspiring against one another. We typically call that social organizations, right? Uh, institutions, uh, the players within institutions. No, I don't see it as one single monolithic conspiracy. I think that I actually uh, draw the ire of, of a lot of my readers because of that. Uh, what I do see is a, a very much... Including Bannon? Do you think Bannon would... No, not at yeah. all. In fact, in fact, I would say that my conversations with Bannon have only uh, solidified my notion that there's not some sort of great plan to overturn God's creation uh, by way of technology. It's, in fact, rather much more of an emergent system uh, and it is one of many uh, competitors competing against each other towards their own goals. Right. And the book comes with a forward from Bannon. We'll have to get both of you on the show when it comes out later in August. Uh, but yeah, I, I do. I, I think that the idea of a conspiracy is very easy to wrap your head around. If you have one uh, group of boogeymen uh, anywhere, be they in Silicon Valley or, Dar or Davos or wherever, and if they're wearing black robes and sacrificing babies, and things like that, it's, it, that's an easy problem to solve. You locate the crypt, you eliminate the, the Satanists, and then problem solved. The world is Right, all you got to do is go and, and watch the new Mission Impossible movie, although I'm going to give away the end because actually at the end, it's just the introduction to the second, the new movie, which won't be coming out for a couple of years. So it's never ending, this thing. 
I think that it's distributed enough that the ambition to create an artificial entity like artificial intelligence or simply to upgrade human beings to optimize uh, human behavior or to optimize human performance, all those things are fairly well baked into the cake of human nature. And I think powerful people have better access to better tools. Um, and I think that powerful people are going to always tend to use those tools to keep the masses in line. That's one thing, if you want to call it a conspiracy, I think that most elites, be they conservative, liberal, or whatever, most elites tend to view the masses as something to be controlled or contained uh, rather than to be in partnership with. Not all, just most. And so if there's any conspiracy, it's a sort of emergent conspiracy of um, the, the, the upper echelons against us lowly dirt people. Well, you don't sound that low, Joe. You, you're in Tennessee. In all seriousness, what's low about you? I only say that. I say that uh, half joking. I, I obviously don't see myself that way or my compatriots. But I do think that those who come from a lower socioeconomic status are, tend to have very little say uh, on the left or the right. The left is very good about handpicking certain uh, poor people or minorities uh, to create a symbol for their magnanimity towards them. And the right does that to some extent, too. But I think that by and large, uh, and this is perhaps uh, perennial, maybe this is always going to be the case, by and large, uh, the, the sorts of value and wisdom and, uh, to me, like the, the salt of the earth goodness of working people will always be something that is uh, sneered at by those who uh, either come from privilege or have somehow found themselves in the upper echelons of society. And that's maybe okay too. Maybe it shouldn't be otherwise. Uh, okay, point taken, Joe. So let, let's move on. You said you're, the final uh, section of the book is focused on fixes. Um, Joe Biden, of course, is addressing this. He's trying to regulate AI. Uh, he recently had a conversation with the heads of Microsoft and Google and Amazon and so on, OpenAI. Um, what, in your view, needs to be done here? I mean, given that we're still in the relative early stages of what you call transhumanism, even if it ever, even if there is a later stage, does it need to be regulated, banned? What are we supposed to do here? So it's very, very difficult to imagine a political solution to this problem. Uh, the, the political solutions that are offered uh, range from the extremes of just banning it outright, banning AI up to a certain level. There's also the idea of licensing uh, and a regulatory body. That's Sam Altman's solution. But of course, that would benefit huge companies like OpenAI and Microsoft and uh, disadvantage any startups or ind independent programmers. So uh, I, I think that ultimately the question is, what danger does AI pose to society? And to me, yeah, I do, I do take seriously the idea of putting artificial systems, to put algorithm systems in control of key infrastructure. Uh, I, I think that that represents a real danger if it goes rogue. But the more immediate danger is simply that human-machine interaction, that human-machine interface and the way in which a hyper-digitized culture has drawn us away from the more human elements that have brought us up to this point, some 25, uh, or how, whatever date you would like to put on it, a quarter million years ago with the emergence of Homo sapiens, 
30,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago, whatever you would date you want to put it on, put on it. Um, the, the human characteristics that should be preserved, uh, I, they are very much threatened by hyper digitization. We are definitely becoming something very different from our ancestors. And for the same reasons, I believe that we should preserve ecological systems and species. I think that it's in our interests to preserve what is ancient in human culture and what is ancient in the human being. So that is the real danger on top of this sort of social psychosis in which reality and fantasy are becoming increasingly indistinguishable. And you don't need AI for that, by the way. So what is the danger to me? It's the uh, subversion of the human being uh, as we have evolved up to this point. And it's the rapid subversion of it. It's this complete discarding of all that is old in favor of what is new. There is no real political fix to that, I don't believe. I think that it begins first. So, so what, you, what did you write about in your final chapter then, if there's no it, fix? It, it begins first with personal decisions. What technologies do you accept into your life? What do you discard? It, it, it moves up from there to communal organizations, right? Whether it be friend circles, families, churches, uh, any kind of civic organization, what technologies are incorporated, which technologies are not, on up to the institutional level of any sort of government agency, any sort of educational system. And I think educational systems are perhaps the most important focus for me. Um, what technologies do you adopt and which ones do you not? I'm not trying to tell anybody how to live their life, but I do suggest that you minimize it as much as possible. And for two key reasons, the first is surveillance. And the second is manipulation. And those two go hand in glove. Yeah, it doesn't sound... I mean, I wrote a book a few years ago called How to Fix the Future. It sounds like you and I pretty much in agreement talk about surveillance. We have the age of surveillance capitalism, Shoshana Zuboff. Again, a great critique of Silicon Valley. Finally, um, Joe, um, I know you do a lot of work in terms of the crisis of trust in media. Now, apparently... Um, Trusted media is so low uh, from a, a February study that half Americans now believe that news organizations deliberately mislead them. Um, that's true both on the left and the right. How might AI play into this and compound that crisis? So, and, and, and how do we address that, given that more and more content on the Internet, for one reason or other, seems to be produced by bots? Uh, first, I'd like to say it's very depressing to imagine that half of the country is not aware that the media is misleading them. Uh, but as far as AI is concerned, I think that it... You first... and I are both media people. Do you, uh, I don't try not to mislead people. I'm assuming you and Bannon are not consciously misleading people on, on the war room. So at least there are two of us here who are honest. Uh, true that. And, I, and I, no sense in painting with a broad brush, but let's just say that all of the major media outlets have proven to be uh, less than objective. Uh, and, and I think that mistrust is warranted. Well, that's uh, a, it, the difference between being less. I'm not objective, but I don't consciously try to mislead people. I, I would say that uh, for me, OK, uh, from my own perspective, the treatment of the race riots in 2015 and 2020 uh, indicate a, a real tendency to mislead. Um, OK, well, that's I, another subject. But, but yes. coming back to AI. Uh, yes. Uh, so I think that uh, something that's most interesting to me is the way in which this mistrust in human 
uh, human conduits of information, this belief that the people, the human beings responsible for informing the public are corrupted has really opened a gateway to people looking at artificial intelligence as being this non-biased and possibly superior conduit for information. I don't think that it's a conspiracy to do that. I think it's more just a natural progression. But that's the first thing that I note, and I, I hear that a lot from people on the right. They are gloating over the idea. They, they love the idea of all of these leftist media pundits being replaced by AI. It's a sort of revenge for them. Uh, there's also those on the right and many on the left who believe that AI actually could do a better job of conveying information. It would be more neutral. It would be more objective. Uh, that, to me, represents a tremendous danger, I think, if for no other reason, just prejudice on behalf of human beings that should be rejected. A second thing, though, that and I think this is really, really important, the idea that you're going to have passable bots on the Internet that are you know, basically occupying what would be human roles, and we're going to move into an era where it's never really, one is never really sure whether the, the being that you're interacting with or listening to on the other end of the screen is actually human, that goes into the sort of social psychosis, which began with the internet in general. One might argue it began with print media, but it's certainly going to be exacerbated by even just the idea that all of these people are bots. Because, I mean, think about it, just from the perspective of the average consumer or person on the internet, if the idea spreads that you don't know if a bot is, or if the, the Twitter account you're following is a bot or a human, um, there's no way to really test for that outside of certain, you really have to turn to artificial intelligence oftentimes to find the patterns uh, that, 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 that indicate an artificial being on the other end. So I, I just think that that's that confusion, that sense of confusion and disruption is profoundly damaging. And the more that people just simply turn back towards human to human contact and trusted human beings, the better off we're going to be as some portion of the society kind of descends into that mass psychosis.